Dana Saunders-Green, and you're listening to Formally Fostered, brought to you by Green Pines Media. This is a podcast about foster care and children's mental health services, and sometimes the juvenile justice system, mainly because there's a lot of intersection between the three. We give emancipated youth and their allies a place to share their truth. Welcome to episode seven of Formally Fostered. In this episode, we'll be hearing the first of a three-part interview that was conducted with a woman who is an advocate for people who've been involved with the child welfare system, as well as children's mental health services. She's also a mother whose child was removed from her care about 10 years ago. Her daughter is now in her early 20s. Over the years, she's had some time to really reflect on everything that's happened. Not only has she developed some pretty incredible insight, she also uses her experience to help children and families within her community. On a personal note, I really admire the fact that she's willing to talk about this. I mean, no one wants to talk about having their children taken by CPS, but in the Black community, it feels like it's taboo. At least it is among almost everyone that I know. We may hear about it on a superficial level, but I never hear parents talk about the mistakes they made. As a social worker, I understand the need for confidentiality when it comes to children and families, but if social services isn't talking about it and the families involved aren't talking about it, how do people know what is and isn't appropriate when it comes to parenting? I mean, it's not like we're born knowing how to parent. And the only time parenting classes are mandatory is after a mistake has already been made. What we think is common sense isn't really so common anymore. That's why I think these types of interviews are so important. Please be advised that this episode does contain some strong language, so it may not be appropriate for young children or people with sensitive ears. Started off, let's see, my daughter was about nine when she started running away and um, and then DHS you know would get involved because uh, you know we're doing police reports or we're searching and then this is the common response to that uh, child missing you get this agency involved and that agency involved or whatever their training is DHS slides on in and then Certain depends on certain states is CPS or DHS. I've dealt with both, and then um, I was a person, I was a parent who believed in corporal discipline because that's how I was raised. The environment that we lived in, it was more of a mixed, less of us and more of everything else. So, you know, your whites and whatever other races in there. So my daughter and I had another child too, such so as two children or different fathers same household brought up in my house they uh she would start taking on these um, new relationships and start picking up the white ways that's how i'm gonna put it okay so my house was you don't speak my business in my house you don't take what i'm doing up in here and tell nobody outside there but their way was you tell everything you know um you have opinions you got a voice you get the express yourself and all of this and that and so all that was coming into my home and 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 that's where conflict was starting at so so now you got a dictatorship going on that's conflicting with my parentship and then seeds are being planted in my child's mind 
and not really knowing how to distinguish what should be what, you know, who they're listening to, my parent or this entity that may seem like the savior. She makes a really good point about racial or cultural differences. Whether we want to admit it or not, they do exist. The confusing thing is that corporal punishment isn't necessarily illegal, but the definition varies. For example, some states say that corporal punishment is fine as long as it doesn't result in substantial harm to the child. Well, that's open to interpretation. But I wonder, what would happen if children's services entered the home to update parenting styles instead of going in to look for criminal behavior? She talks about being frustrated because they never asked her a few simple questions. What is your way or how have you been rearing your child or what do you believe in? And then most of the time, they're not even sending in your equal. They're sending in the white people, you know what I mean? And don't get me wrong when I say white folks. I'm just distinguishing how that came into my world and how it was so much different than what my culture is. So no, they weren't They weren't sending our equals. They weren't sending the black counselors or the black investigators or the black CPS workers. They were sending whoever the hell, you know what I mean? And so it could be a man, it could be a woman, you don't know what you were getting. That whole introduction to another culture's way, uh, manipulation, you know, you learn stuff at an early age and how to work a room or a person and how to play on empathy or sympathy. They, you know, if they came in and got involved, they wouldn't just come and say, oh, we just want to check it out and oh, everything seems okay and we're gone. They would keep an investigation or a situation, however you want to word it, open for three to six months before they decide, okay, this did not occur or this did occur or this is a problem or this is not a problem or the family's fine or they're not fine. So in that, first of all, I got um, two experiences. Uh, my son, at, when he first entered into elementary school, he was immediately pegged as a ADD. She goes on to talk about the mandatory steps that she had to take as a result of her son's diagnosis. But she felt much different about that process than she did with CPS. Probably about a year, year and a half of doing pediatrician and second opinions and testing. It was affecting school. And I can't, I could not, you know, education is a real big thing. I come from a line of educators in my family and military and pastors and ministers and teachers and seamstress so you know we were really big on education it was like we don't cut corners there you know that's what I'm gonna do as a parent to help my child so yeah so the introduction of counselors and therapy and um, IEPs and plans and meetings and all that came early with my firstborn she didn't seem to be affected like him at that age of five or six they would come in and do their therapy and the this and that and the recommendations and we recommend family therapy and we recommend wraparound or we have resources for individuals this and that or um, you know they would give you some information and then as a as a parent who does their due diligence I was always a parent who says uh-huh you gotta take your information and then I research and, and decide what's best up in here and how we're gonna apply it. And so that's how I would do it. And so, yeah, they, they would come in with their recommendations and they want to make sure you're complying with the A, Bs, and Cs. And as long as you were and did, then they would 
come and close the case out. Yeah, so they were they were they were good at that, but still not good at the how how do we relate your culture and how you run your house to our agency and our expectations. I asked her if any of the services were helpful or if there was anything that she liked. Here's what she had to say. It was things I tolerated. It was really nothing I liked because they're intrusive. They will tell you we about the child, the well-being of the child, not the well-being of this whole family unit, the well-being of the child. What that really turns into is that's a damn lie. You you in the well-being of shuffling that paper and getting paid. That's what you in the well-being of and making it look good because you have a degree that says so. Okay, doctorate, PhD, whatever it is that says that you can map out a plan for this family, whether you know how they're living or not, and take this textbook example and apply it. And it's like taking a triangle and try to put it into a square peg. It doesn't fit. And then a lot of the times when they when they came and got involved, they there was no follow-up. You know, I might see that person just that initial time, and then we don't see you no more, but we're doing all these things that were recommended. So, and then maybe, you know, if if, if it became a situation where court was involved, you know, to, to have a final judgment or whatever, then I might see you again. But other than that, you know, it was the initial visit. You probably came up to the school. That was another thing. You know, something would occur in a household and they would go up to the school. Now, whatever was happening behind my doors is now public information. And and now I'm a judge person without teachers or counselors even having full facts. Just, oh, CPS came and did an interview at the school. What the hell are you at the school doing interviews for? And I'm not present. You understand what I'm saying? That was That was some BS within itself. I would I would get that a few times. Like you guys came up to the school and questioned this kid, and then you went over to the other kid and, and questioned them at their school. And I'm like, what the hell is this practice? You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and I wasn't present. Well, isn't that like a police officer questioning a child, underage child, in a in an interrogation room and, and not a lawyer being there? Isn't that kind of the same line of thing? Social workers visiting a child at school is a very common practice. And yes, it's frequently done without the parent's consent. But in some places, that may be changing. For example, in October of 2017, the San Diego Union Tribune published an article by Greg Morin. Here's what the headline said. In rare move, judge reverses jury verdict, rules county violated families' rights. The issue was a social worker interviewing a child at school without the parent's consent. What it boils down to is interviews at school can be conducted without parental consent, a warrant, or a court order, but it has to be exigent circumstances, meaning it has to be an emergency or a life-threatening situation. Interviewing a child at school just to build a case or to gain information could result in a lawsuit. It's important to remember that every situation is different. This particular verdict was based on who had custody, the location, and most importantly, the judge's interpretation. In episode five, a young adult talked about her time in foster care and how she actually wanted the social workers to come and interview her at the school. So in some cases, even the desires of the child would be taken into consideration. 
did I like anything? No, because they were intrusive. They were, quote unquote, for the child and by any means necessary. And even if it meant insulting the parent, even if it meant you don't have a damn thing to say, we're going to do what we do. So you come into my space and my place where you're not paying rent, okay, where you're not paying a bill, where you're not putting clothes on anybody's back in here or food in their mouth at all. While you where you're giving no parental care, but you got a whole lot to say. School wise, you know where now this agency has showed up to the school, and now um, the school has to respond according to their guidelines and how they're deemed legally to handle these types of things. And now there's documents and school mm-hmm. records, and now you know this follows the kid everywhere they go to school to school to school. And beyond, if need be. And school is supposed to be like a reporting agency if they see or think or assume neglect or abuse or something that is happening with the child, then they need to be a reporting agency. I don't really think I really place blame or fault on the school because I understood what they, their position was following school rules now teachers and individually how they acted it would become you know now that child is labeled you know not only does say a child has ADD and that's enough of a label now you know because somebody came in question and came up to the school and and, you know now we got kids looking or I don't know how you guys came in you know did you come in in a in a paddy wagon with a bunch of units? Did you come with one or two? I don't know how you ever entered because that story would never get told. Of course, you question your kid. Who said what? What did they look like? Describe them. You know, what was the tone? You know, did you, were you scared? You know, how did it go? So you have these questions. And then by the time you try to pose them to the school, they got to protect this information, that piece of information. And so, no, they're not sharing that. During my internship, we were taught best practice social work skills, meaning this is how you should do things. If we had to interview a child at school, we were told to maintain their privacy, even writing down their name so that people couldn't overhear who we were there to see. While we were led to a private room, the office staff would retrieve the child. I was curious about whether or not she thought that type of information should be shared with parents. Her response was a definite yes. And it's empowering because if if for some reason that thing didn't go according to the way they were supposed to move, well, now I I can move as a parent and say, okay, I understand the reason why you came in was because of this, but you didn't follow your own protocol. So maybe your practices can be looked at and viewed and changed. It was just a revolving door. It seemed once the door was open, it didn't stop. It was like... Oh, if I got a scratch and I think that my mom did it, let me go and tell somebody at the school. Oh, I was uh, punished. Let me go tell a friend. And now, however that friend interprets it, they go tell their parent, you know, the worst thing is happening with my friend who I I love her so much. and, And her mom is being mean and... She takes things away from her and, you know, and and the story bubbles up because, again, you're not my culture. So the way I do it and the way you're hearing it is, ah, you know, shocking or, oh, my goodness, uh, reactions. And it ain't even, it's not even that deep, you know what I mean? But because Susie or Timmy blew it up to I'll be damned, 
Now it's like magnified to be something 10 times worse than what it was. Okay, she did something out of order that was against the rules of her house and she got her ass whooped. And that's that. And we, we live to see another day now. You know, if it's time to go to bed, go to bed. If it's time to get some homework, get that homework. If it's time to eat, let's eat, you know? So, and we move on. And once the punishment has been handed down, we don't come back the next day with some more. It's done, you know? Once they came in, it's like every little thing. She was, she was like, oh, I can tell on my mom and somebody will do something. Okay, the manipulation. We spent quite a bit of time talking about parenting styles and how those styles frequently developed from generation to generation. She also shared some of the things that she had learned over the years. I would probably say just because of the rearing, um, kind of mimicking the way I was reared, you know, a child is to be seen, not heard. We don't have opinions and voices up in here. You do what I say, not as I do. I feel like in a lot of things, as I look back, like if had I been more, maybe uh, gave the, my kids a forum of openness where they could tell me, you know, this is upsetting me or this is how you made me feel when this occurred, maybe, maybe the, even the relationship today would be a little different. But what was happening is I was rearing them in so many worried ways to fear me. Let's just keep that real, you know. And so when you fear something, you don't talk to it. You know what I'm saying? You, don't, you, you just keep your walk, you know, whatever it needs to be so that you don't stir that up. I was really curious, so I asked her, what was the scariest thing about this entire process? I assumed it would have been something about CPS. Here's what she had to say. They're running away because um, it just, you know, once they, she got a taste of it, you know, it seemed like even with the runaway, you know, you get home and get your butt whipped, you know, don't do that anymore. I didn't have it in me to express that scared the hell out of me. You not being in this house had me fearful of what you were facing outside that door. That's not how I approached that. My thing was, oh, you're going to defy my house? You know, you're going to do what you want to do? You know, and so are you going to embarrass me? You know, so that's when I'm chasing you in projects. We don't even, we ain't never lived in the projects, but yet you over here hanging out 9 or 10 o'clock playing double dutch at somebody's mama house and that parent ain't even got the good damn sense to send you home and ask you who, who, whose child are you? It's, why is your child out at, at, at nine, ten years old? I don't care if they are outside the front door playing double dutch. Why are they out? It's not, they should be in the house. That's something the end, nine o'clock, everybody, matter of fact, you uh such and such an age, so you go to bed at eight, and because you're a little older, you just get an hour early later. You know what I mean? We, it was a tight ship, and, and you over here having a good time. Really, we found ourselves we as in me and my son found ourselves not even being able to sleep because we got us laying on couches, we got to man the doors, we got to put chairs up under stuff. We can't even rest because we don't know when you darting doors. Now, lucky for me, at that time of the running away, I lived in a townhome, so. My room was downstairs and theirs was up. So the only way you get up out of there is if you jumping out of windows. 
And at that time, she she wasn't jumping out of windows. Never did she jump out of window, but she definitely didn't have a wherewithal to jump out of window. So her mindset creeped downstairs and, and let myself out. So we found ourselves being security guards and, you know, just doing unnecessary things. And then I started getting pissed off because I'm like, you're not my only kid, but yet you're getting, you're demanding all this attention that is, is just, and then these people up in my house and it's just like, you know what, you, you're doing too much. It's too much. During the developmental stage where you got to go to family therapy and all of this and that and the other, you know, most of the time I probably was pissed off, you know, probably because I'm not appreciating none of this. I'm not appreciating y'all. I'm not appreciating you, new counselor, you know, and again, you're not my color. Uh, you're not my culture. I'm not appreciating you, little girl. You know what I mean? I'm not appreciating a whole lot of stuff. So obviously, having a nine-year-old who was constantly running away was a pretty big source of stress. But I was curious about some of the other stress that she was experiencing at the time. Here's what she shared. The fathers were in their lives. We did not live together. So my movements was about sometimes being the father and the mother. This is how we going to do this if, if I got the... To keep control over my situation, I got to move to a different beat. Um, so we didn't have fathers in the home. They were around, but not in the home. My daughter's father in particular, he stayed in and out of prison or jail. When we went to court, I had never heard the word before until the judge said it. A habitual criminal because he had well over 50 arrests from juvenile on up to adults. So yeah, it was just work and home and them. Okay. Work and home and them a lot of juggling you know and uh and keeping yourself composed and maintained and keeping your sanity at work and you know while you're dealing with whatever the case may be just regular life even outside of cps one of the things i like to do is i kept them uh active so you know we'd have awesome we have baseball basketball dance you know always something that kept them athletically inclined and and, and uh, involved so I believed in those extracurricular things you know for development my kids were actually extraordinary both of them they both were on a roll even with their ADDs and which we later found out with her um, even with their ADDs or whatever their emotional behavior issues were they excelled in books and intellect they excel. They stayed. They stayed in honors um, classes and magnet school. She spent some time talking about her son and daughter, and then shared that there actually was something else that scared her. Just not having my kids. You know, like you come in and be whoever you are, and does that lead to them being put into a foster system or to a, you know, do you determine I'm not fit enough? I'll tell you, uh, they and they would be disruptive. I could call the time where um, my daughter probably was about a couple of months old and I was back to work and I at this time I worked graveyard shift and so my son was about seven and uh, he was such a big brother just so proud and wanted to be the babysitter and you know everything and just be so helpful and uh, I would have a young lady friend's teenage daughter spend the night and watch the kids and then I'd be home by six or seven and then you know she get herself ready to go to school 
and whatnot. And then my son, he was braggadocious about his little sister. So he had said to one of his teachers that one day he was sleepy. And the teacher wanted to know why was he so sleepy. And he said, because I stayed up and helped uh, feed my baby sister while my mama was gone. He didn't say, but the babysitter was there. So he left that little piece of information that you're seven years old. You know, you don't have all the facts and you may not articulate it the way it actually happened. And boom, they pounced. Bye. Next thing you know, I'm being contacted by CPS agent such and such. My son is telling me that uh, the next day after he told this thing to the teacher, apparently the next day, the teacher got so concerned she did her due diligence and called the CPS authorities. The next day they were up at the school questioning him in a room by himself, da 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 That particular incident led nowhere, you know, because it wasn't what he said and what was actually in the home wasn't the case. But, you know, them flying into action and it was was actually that was actually my first out with CPS and how they get down and them flying into action or too too hastily. And I was I was that parent who's oh I'm ready. Okay. I asked oh you got your pen and paper, so do I. Okay. Now let me tell you what you shouldn't have did and let me speak to your supervisor. Oh, I don't like what you got to say. Well let me speak to yours. And that's how I moved and so that got shut down real quick. I think that was like a week's top they was out of there. Earlier, I had asked her if there was anything that she liked about the services offered by CPS. The answer was no, because they were intrusive. After talking for a while, she told me that there was actually a program that she found useful. My daughter was in this wraparound program that was just specific to her and her situation. And I like that place because when something got told to me, you know, I would be able to relate to it because... I know my kids, so you described it in a way where like, yep, that sounds like her, okay. But I'm still questionable how to, how did it get handled? And they would, you know, be truthful and honest about it and everything. I thought, okay, all right. So that place had me comfortable, but that was one of several. I had a, a friend of mine who left, and we were really good friends. She had uh, four children. The youngest one of hers was probably, and, and my daughter probably three three years apart or whatever. So not too far in age distance. But anyway, she left, went on to Oklahoma, and she had been working on me for years. Oh, you should come and come on and make a change. And education is so good here, and the kids are doing so much better here, and Da, 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 da. I, nope, power, more power to you. Never paid attention to that. I, I wasn't entertaining. And then when the recession hit, and I was in healthcare at the time, I was doing my home health at the time. And so I went from having two clients where I was getting my little 65 hours every week to in one agency to trying to scrape up 25 hours with six different agencies. I started having to downsize a lot of things. So my place and space and living arrangements being one of them. As this is occurring, you know, I got my friend over here. Okay, hey, things are sound, starting to sound a little bit more appealing because this right here is not it. The age of 10, they wanted to have her come for the summer. So I was like, okay, you know, she, I got, I was able to get a three-month 
uh, supply medicine, which was really rare because you have to go in every month. They need to lay eyes on you okay. before they prescribe. But because she had developed a rapport as as this psychiatrist patient and we had developed a rapport, he made an exception. So I have to pause for a moment because this is something that I had never even really thought about. I had never even considered the fact that kids on psych meds may not be able to take long-term trips because they couldn't get enough medication. He went on and did a three-month supply, and so I'm like, okay, you know, my friend, she's an LVN. I'm like, this is, here's, here, you know, giving a whole painted picture of, this child who you last saw and who she is today, are you sure you're ready? You know, uh, you got to look out for things. Here's some triggers. Here's some don'ts. Here's some do's. Here's some goods. Here's some not so goods, you know, because I, I don't ever want to send my kids someplace where a person is ill prepared. And I definitely don't want to send you somewhere where they don't understand it. So then you get mistreated. She goes out there for the summer and her session is, you know, happening and um, I'm downsizing and I still don't have all ducks in a row. Just had to send my son over to his dad and trying to juggle here, trying to survive. So she says, why don't you let her stay? So I said, okay, you know, because I, I'd rather have her stable there than to have her running all around, dragging her from here, there, everywhere with me when I ain't, you know, quite knowing what's the next thing. So, yeah, so I let her stay, did the guardian letter. Now we understand we're at a place medicine is about to either run out or whatever. And I can't go back and get some more. So now we're doing things like, how can we get her that medicine? I could, I could call her a relative and then, you know, try to work my insurance over here on my end, see if that works. So that took a month or two, you know, because you got to have the enrollment time and all that crap And when they do with employees. Is, and so you might have to wait for that. And then um, we weren't thinking, we were, let's do this first before we go to Medicaid or state coverage or whatever. And then so as this time is going by, we now have a child who's not even being weaned off of psychosis. Mm. They're just done. That was a whole hell of a problem that nobody was ready for. I wasn't educated enough at the time about psychosis medication and the cold turkey stomp of it all and what and not to do such a thing and how detrimental it could be. To get an idea of how important the medication was, I asked her if she had noticed any improvement in her daughter's behavior. The biggest and most important thing was that she stopped running away. So of course I wanted to know how did her behavior change after the medication ran out? The things that got told to me was a, naturally the negative things. Uh, I rarely would get even from the LVN friend the, the good. It was either met with stories not being told or as I came to later find out, my conversations with my kid would be monitored to the point where she didn't even feel like she could tell me what was really happening. And so, you know, it was a painted picture, a well-fed painted picture of what was. And uh, so when it started affecting, say, her children, where, oh, your daughter is uh, standing over people with knives now. Or, you know, she's cutting on herself now. She's killing pets now. She's not getting along with folks now. Here those come, you know, flying in. So uh, 
we were trying to get things going so that that insurance didn't work. So now we're going to the state and now, you know, I'm writing things, you know, to get that ball rolling. To me, that wasn't met with an urgency. Now, during that time, again, I'm being painted certain pictures. So those things I'm being told don't sound that urgent. And even if it was the position I was in, I couldn't even get there. Like, let's send her back to what? Or let her stay because I'm coming. I ended up making it out there the following year. So that was, she was out there from say June to I got there in January. So that was a good six, seven months that we're not with mom. We're not with brother. We're not seeing anybody who we, you know, are familiar with. We're having to relearn people who I hadn't, you know, seen in a minute or I didn't know on this level because I was too young then. And so now I have to live with them and, I'm being mistreated or I'm not being understood or I'm off my medicine so I'm chemically imbalanced but I don't know how to tell nobody that. Um, I'm feeling some type of way but I don't know how to verbally express it so whatever's being done to me because you too old or you too big I don't take it out on you but oh let you turn your head and I'm gonna kill a cat. I'm gonna you know drown a dog. By the time I got there, it, it, I moved into action. I'm calling facilities, you know, let's get this girl reevaluated. She was at a point where she was able to tell me, I'm not having a good month. I'm not having a good week. So it would be a couple of times before she actually left that we would have her admitted to certain places out there where she would enter into, you know, the facility and regroup, reevaluate, redo medicine, you know, reintroduce or whatever she would need. There though, you know, because the phone calls were being monitored before I got there, I don't think she felt like she could say that, you know. And if she did, maybe the way she felt, perceived she was being treated, it didn't matter. So I get there and I immediately, I'm on the phone with the facilities. She's too acute. She's too chronic. We got a bed, but it's 500 miles away. Hold on. I, I just I just got to this city. I, def, I don't even know this city, let alone 500 miles away. And, and I just got here. I'm not trying to push, put her 500 miles away. I'm trying to bring her back in. I'm trying to get us reestablished. I'm waiting two months to get into a psychiatrist's office because you wait, you got a waiting list and it's just, it was just never anything that we needed. The medical did kick on in, okay. so it was there, but long story short, she never got into a facility right away, but we did get her to a psychiatrist and then got her on medicine from that point. So she went a good six, seven months without medicine. Wow. She was so far out the box, you know, not just with her behaviors, you know, and probably to a point where she probably would trust me because I left her with the people, you know what I'm saying? But never able to articulate it to me or probably never would she. She probably had a feeling like that, you know what I mean? So we get her on the medicine and we kind of get her regulated and, you know, to the, to the, to the structure I'm accustomed to. But it was hard because they didn't have the same avenues and resources, you know, because it's Podoc, Oklahoma, you know what I mean? So uh, you you big city folk, okay, might have that out there, but, you know, we limited. And then I'm homeless because it's not my house. It's, it's someone else's house that is allowing us to live here. And then, you know, it, I was met with, I didn't even know certain things was going on. Like, I knew her four kids were there, and she had a husband. 
but I didn't know your four grandchildren were there, you know, and I know them, you know, but now that's eight kids plus her. That's not. And so at any given time, we're all dealing with these attitudes and emotions. We got teenagers raging hormones over here. We got preteens and we got younger ones, you know, and so in addition to my daughter, so we got all ages from six on up to like 14, 15 up in here. I was curious, so I asked her, why do you think your friend hid the fact that she had so many kids living with her? Here's what she had to say. Because I think that she wanted me there so badly that had she told the truth about this is the real situation that I probably wouldn't have sent her or I probably wouldn't have come and stayed or it was a manipulation situation because the truth wasn't told to me and I picked up all my worldly possessions and come moving out there thinking it was one thing and it was something else because like I said, she'd been working on me for like seven years to get out there. So I don't know if it was a desperation situation or I'll say anything so I could get my friend out here. I don't know what the hell it was. And to this day, I don't even know. I cut that loose, so I don't know what it was. Why that lie was, or the lack of truth was ever not really shared with me. I, 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 I'm bewildered and to this baffled, okay, to this day what that really was. By the time I get there, you and your husband separated, so he's out the house, and which changes the tone and the atmosphere in this house. And then you had a, you had a white male co-worker who was gay up in there. You ain't tell me about that person. You didn't tell me you had five cats, two dogs, 10 rats, and 20,000 species of, of whatever running around. You didn't tell me your house was off in, in its foundation. It was rickety rack. You didn't tell me that, you know, at any given time, I can't keep all seven of my bills on. We might have three on and four off this month. Or we might have five on, off, and two on the next month. You didn't tell me that you was raising your kids from the back of your room while you sat up back there smoking your Newports and drinking your Pepsis and you yelled from the back and, and gave instructions to the front. You didn't tell me that you were a disengaged parent. You didn't tell me these things. So I came to all of this. So if it, excuse me, fucked me up, how you think my daughter was there if it, within a week's time? Matter of fact, because I'm the sharpest tool in the shit. So within a couple of days time, okay, I was like, oh, whoa, hold up, wait a minute, homegirl. You've been lying. And then you didn't tell me you took your little nasty gambling habits. So half the time you off, you don't know what's happening up in here no way. I also became homeless and I ended up in a shelter while I was out there. Never in my life had I been in a shelter till I got there. Thank you for listening to Formerly Fostered. You can subscribe to us by going to Apple Podcasts or follow us on SoundCloud. Feel free to leave a comment or email us at info at greenpinesmedia.com. So until next time, have a good one.